For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Some Jewish Christians of the first century were considering abandoning their faith in Jesus for the comfort of their old life in Judaism. The pastor writing them encourages them to compare the Savior Jesus to the Old Testament high priest and discover how foolish that would be. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Time to Grow Up. You can make your way to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 where we're making our way through the entire epistle to the Hebrews. We're at chapter 5, and we'll pick up at verse 1, where we left off. And even though it's kind of a complicated book, we are not skipping over it. We're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So um, with that, let's ask the Lord for his help. Word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that before us is the living word that is alive and active. It is sharp as a knife as it is described in Hebrews, to do a good work in us, to get into our hearts at the deepest levels and to to bring life, to bring blessing and joy and peace. And we just pray, Father God, that your spirit who's here would help us to hear the truth, to apply it, to put it into practice so that we can be blessed and be a blessing to others. In Christ's name, amen. Well-known Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe uh, tells a story from his early days of pastoring. He was serving at a church, a Baptist church in Kentucky in the early days, and it was necessary to go down to City Hall and be bonded uh, in order to perform weddings. To be bonded just means you go and you show your legal documents that you can indeed Uh, deliver what you have promised or advertised. And so he was bonded and he showed his ministerial license and his ordination papers that he got from the denomination. And with that, he was good to go, ready to perform marriages. Well, one day, he got a panicked phone call from a friend of his in the congregation who was getting married the next day. But they found out at the last minute that their friend was not authorized to perform the wedding ceremony. And it was, Pastor Warren, can you help us? And he was willing to do that. Now, Pastor Warren made the uh, observation that the relative really knew the people better than he, and they were able to read the ceremony as, uh, as well as he could. But the problem, he lacked the authority to do so. Now, I don't think any couple wants to hear in the wedding ceremony, and now by the powers vested in me, vested in me by me, <laughs> myself and I, or by the authority given me by the make-believe world in which I live, I now pronounce you husband and wife. That wouldn't be fun, especially after you spend all that money. Amen? Nothing would be worse Uh, to find out that after a beautiful, elaborate, and expensive ceremony, uh, only to find out that you're actually, technically, legally not 
married. Well, here in chapter 5 of Hebrews, the question is not, is the man qualified to pronounce you married? The question here in Hebrews chapter 5 is, is the man ordained and has he the authority to pronounce you forgiven? That's what's going on in this chapter. Now, for context, the Hebrew Christians are, are you know, they're tired of the work, the struggle, the strain, uh, the yada, 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 whatever it is that's causing them to want to turn back to their former life. And in their case, their former life was Judaism. And in Judaism, in ancient days, it's all about the high priest. And so he was the man ordained by God to have the authority to perform and officiate the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And after everything was done according to the law of God, this ordained high priest would come out and pronounce, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news. Everything went well. There's forgiveness. Well, pointing toward Christ and the eternal forgiveness, but for yet another year. God's wrath had been appeased. Quite frankly, that is exactly what was going on. He had the authority. He had the papers. He had the uh, ordination from God to be that man until Christ, the God-man, whose job it was foreshadowed in his job, came to perform Not only the mediation, but to be the sacrifice himself. And after that, Jesus appearing, the former high priest, his papers were pulled. His authority had been superseded, laid aside for somebody better and greater and eternal. He was just a shadow pointing But when Christ appears as the high priest, and we don't say high priest. We don't talk about high priest. Why don't you think of it as a defense attorney? Okay, (laughs) defense attorney should bring the feeling of what the high priest's job was. He was to stand before the judge of the universe and broker some kind of arrangement for your crimes. That's the high priest. He's a defense attorney on your behalf. And so... Now his authority is really, uh, as I said, superseded and replaced. So the writer is going to spend some time with these Hebrews who are going back to Judaism, back to Aaron's sons, who are the high priests. They're going to go put their hope in him. And he's going, well, you're not going to do that without me giving you a couple (laughs) reasons why you should not do that. That's what this book and chapter is all about. Verse 1. I have that on the screen. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A very important verse. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, now just as Aaron was. And so let's pause there. If you're taking notes, number one, the qualifications for the high priest. Now, 
he's going to want to compare and contrast. Compare means how are these two things alike? Contrast, how are they different? So he's going to talk about the defense attorney of the Old Testament and the defense attorney of the New Testament. And he's going to say, hey, let, and it's always a good idea. If you're thinking about leaving Jesus for something else, just put the something else up next to Jesus and list the benefits there and let the glory of God just give you help with the decision of either staying with Christ or going backwards. And so that's what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, you want to go backwards? This is who they were. This is who he is. So I think you should stick with Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, this stuff's some, uh, uh, this stuff, you know, the high priest, the, all the Jewish laws of 2,000, 3,000 years ago, what does it have to do with me? Everything. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The whole picture of the high priesthood is the center focus of Judaism. It's the center focus of the Old Testament. It's the center focus of the, of the New Testament as well because it's the pure gospel. If you don't understand, here's a picture of the high priest, all right? Now, this is a picture really of the high priest. And every last thing about that high priest, as we have been saying, relates to Jesus, the church, the gospel, heaven. It's just riddled with prophetic shadowing and pointing. It's just beautiful. And then here, rendered here, is how Jesus comes. Now, this was an office of Jesus who would, who would come, and not only would he be the priest, but he would be the sacrifice as well, because check out his hands. You see, so he approaches the Ark of the Covenant here, the, uh, the prayers of intercession going up because what blood was brought in that said sins are paid for, but he doesn't lay the blood of bulls and goats on the altar. He lays his own blood. It's just a beautiful picture. So without understanding this, this is the gospel, this is the gospel. If you don't understand it, you, you can be deficient. What is it saying? Here's what it's saying. And God is teaching the, the Jews, the world, and the church about what the gospel is. What, what is it saying? It's saying man is in trouble. There's a separation. There's an uncrossable gulf. There, 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 there's a, a, a divide between a holy God and sinful men. So, and, and we can't fix it. It's also saying this. You can't fix it. You need somebody to represent you who isn't a sinner who can offer himself in your place. And by coming into the presence with proof that justice has been served on your behalf as a sinner. When that proof happens, you bring that in and, you, and he represents you, then all is good. And he, he can pronounce you forgiven because he has the right. He has the right. And that, that's the gospel right there. That's just an amazing thing. Look at verse one. Uh, he represents sinful men and women where their responsibility to God is concerned by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins on their behalf. Just, just really amazing. Here's what, here's what this is saying. If sins are paid for by the right man in the right way at the right time, forgiveness and reconciliation with God was possible. 
That's the gospel. Uh, 1,400 years of dress rehearsals telling everybody this is the gospel. There was a problem. You were separated. There was death. Uh, there needed to be justice done to, to bring you into the presence, to intercede with prayers there before the throne of God. And there's a person appointed by heaven to be that person who would offer himself because he's the perfect blend of human and divine. He is the God-man. That is the gospel. It was the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the gospel in the New Testament. What did Paul tell the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. When I came to you, Corinthians, to plant the church, I determined not to go beyond anything except Christ and him crucified. That is the story. That is from where the story springs to life. It's the center of the Old Testament. It's the center of the New Testament. Where is it today? It has shifted away. Here, here are the nine words that the Old Testament was saying. Here are the nine words that, that Paul says, all we talk about is Jesus and him crucified as the foundation for the rest of the Christian life. Here are the ten, nine words. Death, judgment, hell, Jesus, cross, payment, resurrection, trust, life. This is the gospel of the Old Testament. This is the gospel of the New Testament. This is the ABC. This is the narrow is the door that leads to life and few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go in that way. This is the narrow gate. This is the foundation stone. It's the center of the old. It's the center of the new, but where is it today? Where is it today? It's the port nobody wants to talk about. I'll talk about E, F, and G. I don't want to talk about A, B, and C. You can't have E, F, and G or the rest of the alphabet if you don't have A, B, and C. Well, I'm uncomfortable with A, B, and C. Yeah, nobody wants to hear A, B, and C anymore. But if you don't have A, B, and C, and you hide A, B, and C, or you change A, B, and C, you don't have a gospel because you don't have a door. You don't have a door in. So help yourself to E, F, and G. You're not going to enjoy it very much because you will perish. That is the gospel. Go back to the picture. <laughs> That's who he is. Why he came. Who needs the Old Testament? <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Everything in the past was written down. For our sakes, upon whom the consummation of the ages has been fulfilled. He's saying, it was written for us. This is to teach us about salvation and about the gospel. Where is it today? Oh, it's nowhere to be found. It has gone from, it, you don't talk about heaven and hell anymore from the pulpit. And if you do, you get uh, criticized for it. it. It's not about coming to faith and accepting Christ anymore. It's no longer about the cross and sin and repenting. What is it about? It's about God's love that says anything goes. It, it, it's, about, uh, it's about getting along with people. It's about making lemonade when life gives you lemons. It's about anything except, go ahead, give me the words. <laughs> it's about anything except what matters. And of course, this is pushed to the side now because it's the gate to eternal life. 
Of course there's a spiritual battle going on that pushes this away and takes the high priest. Oh, we don't need to talk about the high priest standing there with holes in his hands and blood and water dripping out of his side. Who wants to talk about the sins that caused that? No one wants to talk about that. We just want to talk about the end product. But the beauty of the end product comes from the glory of the cost of what was laid down on our behalf. If I don't get an amen there, amen. I'm calling 911. <laughs> oh, man, come on. Let me, let me just be more controversial than that. <laughs> I read a blog. Somebody emailed me recently. What's up with somebody said there's some controversy about the purpose-driven life. And I said, well, Calvary Chapel takes a stand and says it's not a healthy biblical-based book to give to somebody who wants to know the gospel. And let me help you by reading the quote together. I'll read it for you. This is a great description. Death, judgment. (laughs) In Warren's gospel, Rick Warren, there's no mention made of sin, repentance, or even the cross. Real life, a life with purpose seems to be the reward. It's all about a real life of, re- of purpose. And lacks real life purpose is the problem. So your big problem is you don't know your purpose. Not the priest, not Jesus on the cross, nothing, not sin, not separation, not hell. That's not the problem. Warren's message is this. Find God and you will find yourself. We will agree that meaning and purpose will be a reality to the Christian, but they are not the objects of the gospel itself. The gospel is that we, as rebellious sinners, have offended a holy God, are dead in our sins, enslaved to sin and the devil, and under the wrath of God. But God, rich in mercy, sent his son to die as a substitute to redeem us from our lost condition and give us eternal life. We receive this gift by faith as we turn to Christ and from sin. That our life takes on new purpose at this point is absolutely true. However, we do not come to Christ because we sense a lack of purpose. But because God has opened our eyes to our need for forgiveness of sin and relationship with him, this is one of the fatal flaws in the market-driven false message in which the unbeliever is called to follow Christ in order to receive a lot of benefits, fulfillment, self-esteem, improved marriage, a thrilling lifestyle, or purpose, rather than the gospel's version, freedom from sin and the gift of eternal life. Praise the Lord. Come on, Dr. Gilly. I couldn't have said that better than my, yeah. That was awesome. Listen, there's so much more to Christianity. There is. But it's anchored. It's centered around the core of who Christ is, his work on the cross, his death and his resurrection, which brings all the rest of it. All the rest of it. So that's what he does now. And this is who he is, calling in character. So the rest of the verse, back to the beginning, really is about talking about the, the, the Old Testament high priest, his character and calling, right? And to compare and to contrast with Jesus. And so we have this ongoing effort by the author of Hebrews and Jesus himself to take the fear and intimidation away from approaching 
Jesus, who's very transcendent because he's God in a human body, to take that out of the way and to come freely and, and with, with full assurance and confidence to come to him. You know, even Jesus said, listen, they're catching on that he something supernatural about him because he talks to dead people when they get up. Um, <laughs> so he says, listen, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Yoke up with me, partner with me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is who God is. And so the, the first characteristic of the high priest in the, in the Old Testament is he had to be compassionate and sympathetic because he's saying, listen, if, if people are coming to you to reconcile with God, and you scowl and you judge and you're all of this, you need to let them know, though these things are serious, you are gentle and humble in heart as I am gentle and humble in heart. And the way to do that was to tell the human uh, priest, you will offer a sacrifice for your own sins first so that you can never cop an attitude when you're standing there and people come to you who have ticked you off and you're like, oh, Look who's here now. Look who wants help from God. Oh, Aaron, that will never happen because I will force you by, he must offer, this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. This is why. Why? Because he needs to be sympathetic and gentle with those who are ignorant and who are going astray because he is vulnerable to the same kinds of things. Oh, Aaron. Oh, you come to Aaron because you need forgiveness with God. And if Aaron's heart's not right, he has every reason in the world to cop an attitude. Oh, what was going on? In the wilderness, the Jews, tired of manna. They're bored. They're bored. All we ever eat is manna, manna, manna. Manna in the morning, manna in the noon. <laughs> Don't encourage me to go on with that because... And so what did they say? We had it so good in Egypt. Oh, they cooked with garlic and onion and spices. And they knew how to serve it up, all right. Yeah, they did, didn't they? You're forgetting one part of it. You were in slave pits. There was a whip on your back. Oh, yeah, that part. Aaron and Moses weren't willing. So they said, we'll, we'll teach you a lesson. We'll, we'll kill you, Aaron. And then they need to come to the tent. What's Adam, Aaron going to say to that? There were people, Korah's Rebellion, number 16, where they went to Aaron. Aaron and his sons only could do the, the intimate offerings. And the other Levites and Korah said, hey, what's up with you? You think uh, you, all God's people are equally the same. Who made you any different than us? We can all do it. And they just stood back. But out of envy and jealousy, they created big problems. So they come, Chorus, you know, had he lived <laughs> through that ordeal. <laughs> Those kinds of people would come and uh, that he had to offer for himself. So instead of saying, oh, here you come, you big losers. <laughs> he had to say, Lord, here's the offering for me. Now, when my brother was taking a long time on the mountaintop, Lord. The people got impatient. 
And they said to me, hey, where is this guy Moses? He probably fell off a cliff up there. We want to go back to Egypt. We need new leadership, Aaron. So Lord, what I said, holding the blood, what I said was, take off your jewelry, give me the gold, I'll put it in the fire, and out popped this calf. But actually, Lord, I fashioned the calf with my hands, and I led them in the worship service. No attitude when the others come? Yeah, no attitude. That's what Jesus was saying there. That's what the Spirit is saying. That's what he had to do. Now, the contrast and the similarity here is Aaron and the Old Testament priests after him had sympathy toward the people because they shared in their moral weakness. Here's the contrast. Jesus, as God's high priest, the great high priest, the Son of God, is sympathetic and compassionate, not because he shares in their moral weakness, but because he shares in their human weakness without sinning, the Bible tells us. And every stress, every strain, every temptation, the Bible says, Jesus felt the full weight of that in his humanity. And just always remember Philippians 2. It says, though he was equal to God, God in a human body, he divested himself of his deity. He laid aside his godness and said, I'm doing this as a full-on dependent on the Father human being. And that's what he did. But he never caved. He was tested and tried, but never caved. And so, really, you know, he had to be, it had to be Jesus. It had to be the God-man. Who, who would want a defense attorney who's indicted on the same charges as you are, Right? <laughs> You know, you go to him and say, hey, yeah, I need some help. You know, I got a DUI. And he goes, funny thing, I just got one yesterday. You know, <laughs> that's encouraging. <laughs> no, 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 no. Jesus uh, is the sinless one. Okay, moving on, 5 to 10. So we're going to go from the high priest of old qualifications and now to the qualifications of Christ. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God the Father says to God the Son, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That's a quote from Psalm 2. And he says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He really was. But there was a seven-second delay. <laughs> Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be this mysterious priest in the order of Melchizedek. So let's pause there. Now we've got Christ's qualifications. And so there were two qualifications that he's really honing in on. Number one, he's got to be sympathetic and identify with sinners because he represents them. And number two, he must have God's stamp of approval. So that's God's calling. He has to be called by God. That's exactly what it means. And so 
First, we need evidence that Jesus is the one. The word Christ means the one, the called one, the ordained one. So you've got Jesus, Yeshua. It means the Lord is salvation, Christ, the one, the called one, heaven's stamp of approval, the ordination papers on him to be the salvation from the Lord. So calling, proving that Jesus has got heaven's stamp is a big deal, and that's why he's talking about it here. And why is it so important? (laughs) First of all, you're trusting your soul to him for heaven and hell. That's pretty important. He better be the one. The one means called. He better have heaven's stamp because you put it all there. A lot of people I ask, you're an unbeliever. What do you think happens when you die? What are you basing this all on? We're, we're putting all the chips on Jesus the Christ. And it's important that there's an evidence that he's the one. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 24? There's going to be those many will come and say, I am the Christ. I am the called one. I am the ordained one. I am the chosen one. I'm the way. Follow me. That's what Christ means. So when Jesus says in Matthew 24, watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ. Meaning I am the called one. I'm the ordained one. I've got authority to say I pronounce you forgiven of all your sins. Enter into heaven and have eternal life. That's what Jesus says when he says, many will say that I have that authority, but they're lying. So how do we know who's who? He says, oh, God's calling is pretty evident when you really come from the Father. So he quotes Psalm 2. He says, the coming Savior will have a special relationship with Yahweh. Uh, He says, "Uh, today, this day, I have become your father. You are my son. So here's what he's saying. From the essence of God himself, from the essence of the heart of God, is begotten from God a son who looks like him, who acts like him, who talks like him, who really is equal to him. He's his radiance of his glory. So he's saying this Jesus, oh, he's called. You want to know called? How about this? And John puts it in his gospel, chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, the Pharisees challenged him. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. He says, he says, nobody has ever seen God at any time. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, came to make him known. You want calling. And the essence of who God is in a begotten son through a virgin womb, the God-man, oh, you've got God's stamp of approval. And so, you know, how, how do we know? What's the proof of these claims? The Pharisees said, you're making a lot of claims. Where's the proof? So Jesus said, the proof is this. He said, I am one who testifies for myself, and the other witness is the Father who sent me, Yahweh. How did he do that? Three times in an audible voice from heaven, when Jesus goes to the baptism waters, he's dunked there, 
He rises up. The spirit descends bodily in a bodily form like a dove lighting upon him. And the heavens open up. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son. Of audible voice from the skies. This is my son. You want to know called of God? Whoa, that's called of God. All right. A voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Do not think that this, my son, is being baptized because of any sins that he's committed, but he will bear your sins. He will identify with man. He will become a sin offering, and so he is baptized, but in him I am well pleased. So we know the sin offering is sinless. The high priest who will offer it is sinless, and he is the one. Complete with a dove coming down. Everybody like the heavens parting voice. Oh, man. And if that's not enough, he does it again. Right before the cross, now the high priest who's sinless is going to the cross. And Jesus says, oh, it's time for the cross. And truly, he says, my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason. I know I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel is speaking to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Why? Well, if we're going to deny self, pick up cross and follow, if we're going to give our entire body, minds and souls to somebody and our eternal souls at that, we ought to know this is the one. So he says, now as he's going to the cross to do the work on the cross, this is my way. This is my son. What he's about to do will glorify the love of God for the world and their sins. Oh, and if they, did, if they missed those two, there was another one. But if they missed those three... There were lots of signs from heaven. How about a star that comes over the stable where the Savior is born? I mean, uh, somebody who has control over stars was trying to say something there. So here's the star resting over here. Here he is. Don't miss him. He's called of God. Right? How about all the 300 prophecies? fulfilled, call of God, call of God. He's the one, he's the one. Angels busting into songs in the skies. He's the one. Not, not the, one of the ways, he's the one. And while he's dying, the father says, have I got your attention? I'm gonna plug, turn off the lights now. I'm going to turn off the sun at noon. Switch darkness three hours this is my son the earth shakes the lights go out <laughs> one of the thieves goes whoops <laughs> uh lord uh, whoa remember me when you come into your kingdom <laughs> and jesus says done today you're going to get to see a little bit of that paradise because he saw the father call the son, ordain the son. He has the right 
and no one else does. Jesus said in John 10, everybody else is a thief and a liar because they want you to put your souls of your, your, the chips of your eternal soul on them. They say, don't worry, trust me, do good works, be a nice person, do this, do that. And you wake up and you have perished because they aren't ordained. They don't have papers. They don't have a calling. You follow Christ and Christ alone. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. And not a name for me, my name. That's why we have missionaries. That's why he sends us out. Amen? All right, so we probably should move on. <laughs> the other thing is, is compassionate nature, right? So this is the part of the verse here, uh, verse seven, that he sympathized with us. Now, I was in a church service once just as an average guy. <laughs> I got caught on my notebook <laughs> as an average guy. Just proof. <laughs> And there was this young whippersnapper at the pulpit, and he was whipping us all into shape and telling us to stop crying about yourselves. Jesus never shed a tear about his own problems. He never did. He never cried. He never did this. He never did that. So afterwards, I humbly went up to him. <laughs> Lord willing, it was humble. I don't remember much of it except bringing the Bible. And I said, hey, just a word. I got a verse for you. I opened to this verse. I turned the Bible and I said, could you read it? And he was reading. I said, could you read it out loud? So he did. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. He was denied, but he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, He's making the point, listen, Jesus is, a, uh, is someone who's sympathetic with all your weaknesses. He knows what it's like. He's cried. He cried tears. Now, we, we know he's talking about Gethsemane, which means the word Gethsemane, Gethsemane means to crush, the wine press. We know what he's talking about. But Jesus wept in other ways. John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible. What does it say? Yeah. Right? Young preachers, come on, man. <laughs> Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Well, he wept at Lazarus's memorial service. Why? Because nobody after three and a half years had a clue. Nobody believed that he could actually do what he claimed to do. He said, I told you I'm the resurrection and the life. I came down from heaven. I'm God in a body. And everybody's like, oh, we lost him. And, and he's saying, oh, no, bring me, to the, bring me there. I'm going to fix this. Oh. And he cried. He said, man, oh, how slow are people to believe? And he cried. Jesus wept, that's that verse. But here is really the main event that Jesus cried. Now, now listen, I'll read it to you, Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, uh, sit with me while I pray. 
stay with me. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, Papa, God, Son of God to to the Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yeah, he, he knows suffering. He knows suffering. That's the point. Now, eight and nine are, are very intriguing. And it's not that hard to understand because we know he's God and he's perfect. But it says, although he was a son, the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I've got a quote that is very concise and well stated. I'll read that about this verse. Jesus knew the Father could save him, and he fervently asked that he would, but complied willingly when that prayer was denied. In this, he continues to grow in his obedience and becomes a willing sacrifice for our sins. That sacrifice is made perfect in the sense of now complete through his suffering and his compliance in his suffering. The sacrifice for sin is ready, perfect, complete. And now he's the eternal source of salvation for those who obey Obey what, you ask? The command to trust. The command to believe. So, as a pastor, the last verse of the section, he's been throwing around twice now this mysterious name, Melchizedek. So I can hear him thinking, I know what you're thinking now. Okay, he identifies, but he's not ordained in the line of Aaron. Aaron comes from the tribe of Levi, Jesus descends from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is in the line of the kings. He's related to the kings, King David. He's related by blood to King David on his mother's side, right? And, and, and so what is he saying here with Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is quoted only twice, once in Genesis 14 and once in Psalm 110 about the Messiah, so long story short, because he's going to talk about Melchizedek for a couple chapters. So just long story short, he's saying, yeah, he's not related to Aaron in the way that normal high priests are ordained. He gets the authority to be a high priest from somewhere higher, somewhere eternal. So that's the story on Melchizedek. I'll save that for later. Now let's finish the chapter, and it's really self-explanatory. Not much needs to be said. 11 through 14. Now we have much to say about all of this, but it's hard to explain because you're so slow to learn. Okay. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk. Not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still a baby, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Righteousness there means Christian life with God, the gospel, living as a Christian. 
But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Here's what he's saying. Here's a paraphrase of that. Boy, we could talk all night about these things. We'd love to talk at great lengths all about Melchizedek and everything else. But you don't seem to listen. And that makes it hard to understand. People who have known the Lord as long as you have are now teaching the Bible. And here you are still learning your ABCs. You're like little babies needing bottles who can't tolerate solids. If you're a believer who only drinks milk from a bottle, you're unfamiliar with teachings of the Christian life. The steak and the potatoes of God's word and life is for those who are used to hearing the truth and applying it in their lives every day, moment by moment. And by doing that, they can know for themselves what's right and what's wrong. So point number three, another qualification, qualification for Christian maturity is this, putting God's truth into practice and applying it every day. That's it. Not a, not a big program, not a list of 15 things you got to do to be a mature Christian. The insights and, and applications daily, learning from your mistakes, growing, changing, repenting, engaged. That's what they're not doing. So here's what he's saying. Could you, you Hebrews, my friend, my friends, I pastor you. I love you. And he said, could you help me out? I can't get to you now because you're becoming spiritually dense from your carelessness and your hardness and making up all your excuses while you're going back. I, I The word of God and, and presenting to you arguments in the word. I can already hear you, who. You know, rolling your eyes and saying, Oi, vey, we got to hear about Melchizedek now. Oh, come on. He's saying, listen, you guys, you are going to, by your spiritual immaturity, bring about your own spiritual demise. Why is the word falling flat? Why can't you understand? Why aren't you hearing what I'm saying? He's saying, because you're still a little baby. That's not good. That's not good at all. Here's a nice quote. With the introduction of mysterious Melchizedek, pastor knows he's losing most of them. They have shorter attention spans than they used to have, and they have long ago lost the joy in learning of growing and being challenged and applying the truths they once were so glad to receive. So he admonishes them, please start to grow up or you will find that your self-will disinterest in spiritual things will become your own demise. First Corinthians, the Corinthians, the most happening church in the New Testament. Verse chapter, you guys lag behind and no gifts. You got them all. And everybody wants to use them all at once. <laughs> he says, but you've got some other problems. You're babies. You're babies. You're all drinking spiritual milk. He says, you're fighting, there are cliques, there's sexual immorality. I heard people are getting drunk at communion at home fellowship groups, he says. <laughs> he says, you may notice some of you are sick and dying. Connect the dots there. You don't carouse and get drunk at the communion service. He says, 
That's because you are babies. Now, when somebody's born again, yeah, they're born again. They come home in swaddling clothes and they're goo ga ga, you know, saying funny things. You know, one guy asked me a brand new Christian, he said, What's up with what's up with job? I said, What's up with what's up with job? What do you mean what's up with job? You need a job? And he goes, No. What's up with job in the Bible? I went, Oh, Job. He said, then why do you spell it like job? <laughs> it's a long O, bro. It's a long O. <laughs> Everything babies do is cute. I have three of them. I mean, not me, but I, I participated. And <laughs> she had them. They were so cute, Barb, right? Everything, everything. I mean, if we could post back in those days, well, they'd be posted. Every single thing. Oh, they just spit up. Isn't the spit up cute? You know? You know, they, I mean, even going potty. It was just like, oh, you go to potty. You know what? Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, they babble and they they do their things. And though some babies, they're so cute the way they scoot, they find ways to get around. Uh, without walking. <laughs> they look like, you know, on Jungle Book where the, the kid is walking on all fours, you know? It just, it's so cute. But it loses its cute. When you're eight or nine, that's called heartbroken. That's called mom and dad crying at night in the bedroom because something's wrong. Failure to thrive is a medical diagnosis when a baby just isn't growing. What's, where's all the milk going? Where, what's happening? It's not assimilating the nutrition. There's lots of reasons for that, but the outcome is the same. They're just not thriving. They're not growing. And spiritually speaking, he says, my friends, you're not going to get more mature in Christ by having birthdays. It takes your spirit to be engaged. Uh, have, you, have you ever met older people who are just grown-up babies, the grown-up teenagers? I have. I, I, mean, do you, I mean, you can make jail visits. I have to go to the jail, and there are men and women in there who are as old as I am, and they are still teenagers. They have not connected the wisdom between their actions and consequences. They cannot tell themselves no. They do not have character qualities like honesty, even when you don't want to be honest, and integrity, even when you don't want to have integrity, you have it because you're mature. They don't have any of that, and they're, not, they're caged like animals because they're little kids in grown-up bodies. And when you have a little kid in a grown-up body, a lot of damage can happen. He says, Hebrews, are you kidding me? You could be teaching Bible studies. What are you doing? Come on, man, engage. Listen, grow. Apply the things. And I mean, really, it's not complicated. How does a kid grow up? A kid grows up not thinking, hey, I got to grow up. I got to grow up. I got to become an adult. Oh, you know, no. 
just every day, it happens because they're going to school, they're learning something, they get homework, they have to put it together. Now, a guy came, came up to me and he says, hey, man, listen, I got saved last Sunday here. You know, Jim saved me. And I said, uh, first lesson, <laughs> Jesus saved you. And he goes, oh, I know that. I know that. But he used Jim's hand to do it, you know. And so he says, and I can't believe it's only been a week. He said, he gave me homework. He gave me the book of John because my name is John. <laughs> so I've been reading. And he's here right now. And I'm sorry, John. <laughs> and, and he says, and he says, oh, all this stuff. And, and, and I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing. And I can't believe it's happened in a week. I said, bingo. That's what we're talking about. That's how it happens. He, he's reading. He's going, oh, he learned something new. He applies it. He lives by it. And when he needs a course correction, he does a course correction. Right? That's how you grow. It, and it just happens. You don't even trying. You're just walking with the Lord. Just walk with the Lord and make growth. Your Christian growth something that's important to you. So you've got to ask, your quest, ask the question. Am I staying the same right now? Am I in a stall? Am I falling back? Was I once more on fire than I am now? You're going to ask these questions. Or am I really growing? These are the questions that the Hebrews had to ask. And he's just saying to them, looking at them, please, I say to you in Jesus' name, let's together grow up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love and your long suffering with all of us, Lord. We, me included, Lord, it just, it's work to cooperate sometimes, Lord. Help us to do so by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. We thank you for these wonderful truths and, and a wonderful challenge from your word, Lord, to, to become mature because that's where the blessing is in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page.